If you have Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings today, which is, we don't spend a lot of time in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 17. Um, picking up with verse 8. And then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he set out, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gates of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said to her, that she was that, what? I forgot how to read. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's such a great distance from this to my eyes that it's just, you lose lose it. Hey, um, uh, I realize I haven't said hello yet. I'm Matthew, and I'm the lead pastor here, and it's wonderful to be in God's house with you today on this extra day of sleep Sunday, Um, extra hour of sleep. Actually, I obviously didn't get either, um, but um, I, <laughs> um, I want to, uh, <sighs> sermons over the next two weeks, so we're coming into the end of ordinary time, so, which is like, what does that mean? Um, I'm glad you asked. Ordinary time is the sort of flexible season between the end of Easter and Pentecost and then the beginning of Advent, which is starting the Sunday after um, Thanksgiving. And it's like a six-month-ish season in which the church is sort of uh, called and invited and, uh, to, to focus on things that feel pertinent to the church in the season that it's in. And because of that, there's a lot of flexibility to it. Whereas like Advent and Lent, Easter, these have very specific themes that we end up repeating every year because they're part of our formation. Um, so we have a couple more weeks in the season before we jump into Advent, and I'm going to be preaching the next two of them. And I just, uh, as I was beginning to write this message this week, I realized that I I feel like these two sermons are coming uh, out of a place where I don't really know what to say anymore that's new about the moment we're living in. And so part of what I probably will end up saying today, if you've been here for a while, um, will feel maybe even like a broken record uh, a bit. Um, uh, At the risk of sounding melodramatic, which... I was a drama kid, but at the risk of sounding melodramatic, um, uh, I don't know anyone who's doing, like, thriving right now. Um, and uh, and I, most people I meet 
are doing okay. If I'm like, how are you doing? And they're like, okay, we're making it. Like we're hanging in there. Like, are you living the best years of your life? No, definitely not. But we're surviving. We're, we're doing all right. I was meeting with someone this week who looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, everyone I know seems to be coming apart at the seams. And if you feel like that might be true to you, and if it's not true for you, that's truly wonderful, great. Um, Please tell me afterwards and then share me your secrets. But most everyone I know does feel like this sort of like lingering, ongoing, lagging season of just fatigue and weariness. And it's like, how do I, I don't even know what, to be hoping for anymore? Like, there felt like there was a period of time where we had, like, clear, like, well, we know what the hope is, you know? We'll flatten the curve, and then we'll, whatever it is, you know, we'll get the vaccine. It's like, and it's just like, what are we, what, what, what's happened societally? And of course, um, uh, if, you're, if you're feeling that way, you're, you're not crazy. Um, Axios, the, the, the news site, uh, put out a story a couple weeks ago called um, America's Shadow Epidemic. And in, in this article, it said that the number of people that are reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression have skyrocketed during the pandemic and have continued on even as the pandemic seems to be receding. Substance abuse has increased. Um, there is an alarming number of children and adolescents that are showing up in emergency rooms seeking mental and behavioral health treatment. Um, and it, it concludes by saying, we may be exiting the worst part of the coronavirus, hopefully, maybe, but we are just beginning to grapple with the subsequent mental health epidemic that's in our country. So much so uh, that the AAP, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, uh, and the Children's Hospital Association declared a couple weeks ago a national emergency in children's mental health, citing the serious toll of COVID-19 pandemic on top of existing challenges. There was already existing challenges in that community. Uh, By the year 2018, suicide was the number two killer for people between the ages of 10 and 24. It's tragic and awful, um, but it's only gone up uh, since then. Uh, I was talking with an adolescent psychiatrist not long ago, and she said the conventional wisdom at the beginning of the pandemic was that the ones among us who are most resilient are the children, and the children will be able to be like rubber. They'll bounce out of this thing. It's really the grown-ups that we're most worried about. And she said to me as we were talking about this, she's like, that conventional wisdom has been proven to be devastatingly false that actually the children among us are suffering unbelievably right now. And if you are a teacher or if you have children, you probably are experiencing that. That it turns out that this thing has kind of kicked the legs out from all of us. And so what we find ourselves today is, is in a society which doesn't really even know what it means to thrive again or what it means to get on the other side of a thing. We're just sort of stuck. It feels like that there's like... There's two sides to this pandemic, and one we can measure, and the other is, is invisible, even more invisible than a virus, and it is having just as devastating an impact on the landscape. There were several studies done by the CDC between March and October of 2020 that cited that the number of emergency department, emergency department visits for mental health emergencies rose by 24% for children ages 5 to 11, by 31% for children ages 12 to 17, In addition, emergency department visits for suspected suicide attempts increased by 51% for girls the ages 12 to 17. This is happening right now among us. 50% increase in people who are trying to kill themselves, little kids, because they feel so overwhelmed and crushed by the burden of of life at this moment. And this this is, what does the church say in a moment like this? Like, how do we respond? The president of uh, the AACAP, uh, 
Gabrielle Carlson says, we are caring for people with soaring rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, loneliness, and suicidality that will have lasting impacts on them, their families, their communities, and all of our futures. Now, while the particulars of this season that we're living in right now um, are unique, you know, global pandemic, so on and so forth, hasn't happened in 100 years, while the particulars of this moment are unique, the, th- the feelings associated with this season of anxiety and depression, um, fear, panic, uncertainty, uh, these things are not unique. Um, these are as old as humanity. And they're not new to God's people. And the story that comes to us today from the book of First Kings um, tells us that God finds us in those places too and has something for us, a perspective maybe. Um, not something that's necessarily going to fix it, but that's going to like give us a perspective or a lens through which to view the moment we're in uh, right now. So we'll begin with, we have just three headings today, and the first is this, the global becomes personal. The chapter, um, if, you're, if you have your Bible and you go back to the beginning of, first, uh, of, of chapter 17, you see that we start the chapter on a global scale. And what, what I mean is that it's a story of a king, King Ahab, and a confrontation with Elijah the prophet. Elijah bursts onto the scenes out of nowhere. He has no introduction. He's just suddenly there like shoeless Joe walking out of a cornfield. And he has a message for Ahab. And Ahab, has, uh, he is not a good guy. He's a very bad king. And Ahab and, and Elijah will have many confrontations, including some really just killer ones later on. But Ahab is not a good king. He's leading the nation of Israel astray. And the reason is, is because if you go back to the end of 16, you will see he marries a woman. And this woman's name is Jezebel. That's right. She's a real person. She's not just a slur that is used now by fundamentalists against women in power. She actually once existed. And Jezebel was truly a horrible person who did lead the heart of Ahab astray to the worship of Baal. And all these shrines were set up and the temple was misused and it led the whole nation astray. And so Elijah comes to Ahab at the beginning of chapter 17 and he says these words, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he says, essentially, there are going to be now national, global impact uh, uh, consequences for your behavior because you have led the, the nation away from the fountain of living water to broken cisterns, to false gods. Now there will be an actual material reality that this uh, is seen in the world, that there will be drought, there will be no dew, there will be no rain until I, um, until I change my mind, essentially, he says. Now our text today begins with, uh, like, like takes this big global national problem and puts it down on a single individual and how it's affecting this one uh, this one woman. The king, the king's sin has affected the whole land, and we're brought to one person in this land who is paying the price for that. And that is, just to sort of step back, is how suffering works, right? That's how, that's how it actually works in real life. Um, there is, of course, national, uh, uh, systemic, global uh, suffering that needs to be understood, but it always works its way down to uh, individuals, um, it's, it's, that's, that, that's, how, that's how it plays out in real life. So it's, and it's important for us, I think, as Christians and as kingdom-minded people to be aware of both, to be aware of both. So, for example, uh, you know, uh, it is important, I think, for the church to acknowledge and recognize that there is um, undeniable, well-documented, uh, disproportionate wealth disparity between 
white communities and communities of color. And this isn't just because of chattel slavery from 400 years ago or Jim Crow laws from 100 years ago. It is because uh, after the war, GIs came back and government entitlements created the middle class through, uh, through giving money to basically white GIs that was then kept back from black GIs. And so the middle class exists today not because of hard work and bootstrapping, which would be the American idea, but instead it was actually because the government built it through subsidies. And that this actually trickles down today. We need to understand these things if we're going to be intelligent about understanding how schools work and how communities work and why there are food deserts and why some of us had no awareness of that where we grew up. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand that those things that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago, 500 years ago, trickle down today to individual young men who 51% of whom will drop out of high school in our city, who are today in overcrowded, underfunded, understaffed schools, whose parents had better hopes, better ambitions for their children than this, but who are going to watch the individual suffering of one man choose to walk away from a potential good future because he sees no other way forward. That's how suffering works. It's big, it's large, it's structural, and it works its way down to individuals. Suffering is personal. And we see that the man of God, that's what she calls him later in the chapter. I didn't just come up with that. The man of God um, is sent to the suffering person. The woman is a widow. She's a Sidonian, a Gentile. She has an only son. And they're starving. And this feels like a post-apocalyptic scene to me. She's gathering sticks to go home and make a final little loaf of bread to try to like stave off death just a couple more days on the off chance that they might be able to find food to extend their life a little bit, but probably this is the last meal that she and her son will eat before they starve to death in their homes. That is bleak. That is bleak. And that's how Elijah finds her. God sends him to her, a Gentile, a woman, a widow. God sees the big suffering. He knows all about it. He also sees all the individual suffering. And how cool is that to think about for your life right now? God sees all of it. The sighs, the anxiety, the depression, the panic attacks, the financial worry, the suicidality and ideation. He sees all of it. He sees the way that you've been affected with mental health or the way that physical suffering is taking your life and, and making it harder to live or the way that you're watching a person and caring for a person who's becoming more and more difficult because of what they're facing in their life. He sees all of it. He sees the individual suffering, which means, first of all, like he, he knows, he knows. And also, we should be kind because we don't know, but every single person we encounter is fighting a great battle, as the famous uh, saying goes, who is attributed to four different people. Be kind. Everyone you know is carrying a heavy burden that you don't know anything about. Every single person in here you meet is going through something that you don't understand, even if they try to tell you about it. Suffering is personal, and the man of God is sent to the suffering. He is the God who sees. He's given a name in the book of Genesis, El Roy. It's not Spanish for the Roy. <laughs> El Roy, the God who sees. He's a God who sees. And so we should be kind to one another. And also, this is why it's so important for us, friends, to acknowledge 
and address the pain and suffering in our own lives. God sees it. He wants to do something about it. If we don't address it, which we'll talk about this more next week, it's going to turn us into something that we don't want to be later in life. The man of God is sent to the suffering, and so are you, and so am I. And we are sent to one another. And then finally, as he comes to her, she discovers that he is the God of just enough. This woman is invited to believe that there will be enough. This is an incredible thing. She says, I have just enough to make one little cake for my son. And he says, I want you to make that for me instead. Can you imagine? Like, what that, like would, would anyone have blamed her if, if she was like, no, are you crazy? I just said I'm collecting sticks to go and watch my son die. I want you to make that for me instead. Seems obtuse. She's not even, she's not even um, like an Israelite. She doesn't even know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She has no reason to trust this man that he knows what he's talking about or that he's going to come through in his promise. No reason at all. And I just, as I was just thinking, I like to like be imaginative, especially with these stories. I think that's really helpful way to read the Gospels and the Old Testament stories is just to, to play them out in your imagination. And I just imagined her watching him eat the last bite. Like what that would feel like. That's all. That's it. That's the last. It's. She's invited to believe that if she does this, there will be enough for her when she goes to make a second cake for her son. And of course there is. She learns that there will always be just enough. Now I would imagine that every day for the first couple weeks, she went to the jar and panicked a little bit before opening the lid. I, I bet she also probably wondered if she would go and like, and it would be full, you know, like that's what we would want. Like that's the way we want God to provide for. We want her to lift up the flask of oil and be like, oh my gosh, there's oil everywhere. What are we going to do? That's, that's the sort of story we want for her. And that's the kind of God that we do have sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of verses in the Bible, and, and, and we love them, that talk about how God wants to just pour out blessings upon us. He says in Malachi, Test me now in this, if I will not open for you windows of heaven and shower down on you blessings. The, the New Testament tells us that he is the God who is able to do abundantly beyond all that we could even ask or think. That God will provide all of our needs, Paul says in Philippians 4. This is the God that we have, a God who is abundant in his blessings. And probably many of you in here, like myself, would say that your life is more marked by that kind of living than not. That there has been blessing upon blessing in your life. As Charles Spurgeon um, said famously when he was describing the richness of his life, he says, what, all of this and Jesus Christ too? That would be probably many of our experiences in this life. Even those of us who have gone through suffering, even those of us who have known want. But the testimony of the scriptures is that God, while he is the God of abundant blessing, he's more commonly the God of daily bread. He's more commonly the God of just enough. That, friends, is the normal life. The God of just enough. The preachers of prosperity theology want to convince you otherwise, and it, but it's a lie. And there is a particular evil to a theology that preys on the poor while lining the pockets of the wealthy. The expected life for each one of us 
is a life of just enough. And I don't mean just enough money because goodness knows in this room, in Oakhurst, we blow that out of the water. But I mean like just enough oil, just enough flour, just enough to get you through the day. If anything, we probably could bear witness a thousand times over that having money in the bank turns out is never just enough. That the God of just enough is going to give us just what we need, just the daily bread. There's a story in the Old Testament that I really love from um, the book of Joshua. where So to know where you are, you have like Moses and the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. That's what they, when he carried them, the Ten Commandments. And all the stuff, you know, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, all these stories that are just really great stories. Forty years wandering. Finally, they get to the end. Moses dies. He's buried by the Lord. Pretty cool. Um, and they come to the Jordan River and they cross the Jordan River. And they're now finally stepping foot in the promised land, the place that they had been told was promised to their great, 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 great grandfathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all throughout 40 years in the wilderness, God fed them with manna from heaven, bread from the sky, miraculous bread, water from rocks. He says he took care of them. He carried them as a father carries a son. And even the shoe leather that they had did not wear out in those 40 years. But they weren't getting new shoes every day. They always had just enough. And this is what it says in Joshua 5. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they kept the Passover. First time they'd kept the Passover since Egypt. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they had eaten from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. There will be a day, loved ones, when the manna ceases because you will eat the produce of the land. But our life right now is marked by daily bread, not by fields ripe with harvest. And I think that there's a certain like comfort in just acknowledging that, that what we're experiencing right now, while it feels particularly difficult, is actually remarkably normal in the world. Now, what we're going through, if anything, is a sign of how out of touch we were with human suffering and with the way that most people in the world live. Paul says in Philippians 4 that he has learned the secret of being content with little and being content with much. Um, There's this type of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy that I've been reading up on recently. And dialectical behavioral therapy is distinct from cognitive behavioral therapy in the sense that cognitive behavioral therapy says the problem can be, effect, can be fixed, first of all, by fixing the mind in new directions, learning new ways to think, you know? And that can be like reexamining your past and all sorts of stuff. But cognitive CBT is all about like sort of like changing the way one thinks, whereas dialectical behavioral therapy is more about not changing the way you think, but changing how you respond to distress. So it's the idea that like we're all sort of living in, a, in like sort of ongoing distress and the dialectic the two things at once is that I can live in distress but it doesn't have to own me 
you know? I can't necessarily fix it, but it doesn't have to control me. It doesn't have to ruin my life. One of the skills in DBT is what's called radical acceptance, and I've been thinking about radical acceptance a lot recently. Radical acceptance says this as sort of as a foundation. It says when a problem enters your life, you can do one of four things to it. One, you can solve it. And isn't it nice when that works out? But very rarely do the problems that come into our life have solutions, you know? So we just have to forget this. This, this doesn't exist. So there's only three things left. When a problem comes into my life, there are three things I can do with it. The first thing I can do with it is make it worse. We all know that. I can make it worse. We see this also, too, like, like, uh, f- like families where, like, one of the kids, like, a kid gets really sick and is in the hospital or gets cancer or something like that, and, and, like, and then the dad has an affair, and you're like, what? It's like, well, that's one way to deal with problems. You can make things worse. We all know that. We can all choose to make things worse in a moment. The second thing you can do is you can ignore it, and that's what a lot of us do in here. We try to act like it's not real, and we just drown it in things. We drown it in, in, in screens and busyness and work and, and to-dos and exercise and alcohol. We, just, we try to ignore it. Of course, the thing that we all know, if we try that for long enough, is that we can try all day long to let the mind ignore it, but the body keeps the score. Our bodies know, and our bodies aren't tricked or fooled. It will come up. It'll show up some way, one way or another. So we can either make it worse, we can ignore it, or third, we can accept it and learn to cope healthily with it. And that is not fun. But it's, of course, the only way. It's the only way. And as I look at just a tired group of people, I'm not saying you guys look particularly tired. <laughs> you look great, well-rested. But as I look out at a generally fatigued and tired group of people, society right now, and all the things that are still up in the air, even like thinking back a year and a half and all the momentum and around racial reconciliation. And it's like, yes, okay, there's, there's energy around something. We can direct our energy. And it's like, and it just sort of over time, the wheels come up. And we just, we just become, once again, just as I look at a room full of people, I just want to say there's a gift for us um, if we're willing to, to start with this idea. I can't change this. And ignoring it is not working but I can accept it and I can learn to find the God of just enough in the middle of it. I'm reading a book called Beginning to Pray by Anthony Bloom, who was a 20th century Eastern Orthodox um, archbishop. Bishop. And it is an incredible book. They always trick you because they're little, you know? Um, but, <laughs> but, they, but they read forever. Like, they're so, it's so profound. And I just... You should get it. Um, we should sell it. Jenny, we should sell that book. Um, I'll order it this week. Um, so Bloom says, when we pray, so this is, this is what Paul says. Paul says, like, I've learned to be content with much. I've learned to be content with little. How have I learned to do it? He tells us in the previous chapter, I've learned to find my identity in Jesus. I've learned to sink myself into the presence of Jesus. That's how I do it with floggings, betrayals, shipwrecks. I've learned the only way to to handle any of these things is to be in the presence of Jesus, which, of course, that's where I'm leading you all. I'm a pastor. Where else am I going to take you? You know? I've learned to, to meditate. I've learned to sink. I've learned to be present to Jesus. And Bloom says in his book, when we pray, one of the reasons we have such a hard time with praying is because we imagine that God is out there, and we have to hope that our words make it to him. And Bloom says, no, no, no. God is in here. When you pray, pray inward. 
Pray to the one who's already there, who's closer to you than you are to yourself, who already knows everything. So you don't have to, you don't have to worry about like, is God busy? God is perfectly present to you in this moment. The, um, the great preacher, I don't even know how to describe him. He's a, he's a pillar of the church, St. John Chrysostom. He, he says famously, find the door of your heart and you will discover it is the door of the kingdom of God. A lot of us are looking for, like, how do we find, how do we find God in the middle of this? And what the, what the, what the church fathers are telling us, what, what the people who've gone before us, who've lived in distress, who've known all sorts of suffering, say, the way that you and I do it is becoming people who are deep internally. What I'm telling you is that the way that we actually live into the God of just enough is to be still enough to find that God is within us. The way that you and I become people who learn to eat daily bread is to become people who can find the daily bread inside of us. What Henry Nouwen called the inner voice of love. I want to be clear here. I am not saying you are God and you just need to tap into that internal divinity. You are becoming a part of the nature of God. That's what 1 Peter tells us. 2 Peter 1. Pretty cool. Becoming partakers of the divine nature. That is your future. The Trinity icon, the three people sitting at the table, the rublevs that we used to have up all the time. Like you're welcome invited to that table, not as an equal, but as a, as a guest, as a child, as a, as a loved one, as a family member. What I'm telling you, though, is that the only way that I can think for us to survive this and do this well is for us to become contemplative people. And we'll look at that more next week on what exactly that means. But I just want to give you a couple of tools instead of just say, like, try this and then give you nothing. Um, I just want to tell you what I do right now. Um, a friend recently put me onto an app called Soul Time. S-O-U-L, time. It's a meditation app. It's a Christian meditation app. It's like six minutes, seven minutes. It's not long at all. You can try it out, and if you like it, then you can buy the subscription or whatever. It settles me in every day, and the lady has the most wonderful Irish voice. (laughs) You're going to thank me just for the opportunity to listen to her read scripture to you. You're going to be so happy. Um, This is something I use almost every day. Uh, I, I told you recently I've started doing some what's called centering prayer, which is where you just don't say anything and you just listen or you just focus on a word. You just begin with the word. that, And I'll usually like read the scriptures first and then like a word will kind of come out of it and then I'll just stay with it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, it's, 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 that's, that for me, that has become a space where I, I feel my, my heart rate slow down or I, can, I, can, I have perspective. I've started doing breath work. I do breathe, breathe, like breathing sessions every single day. Like deep breathing, breath retention, just becoming like part of my body again, like, like reintegrating myself. I do all of this in the context of like reading the Psalms, reading the Gospels, spending time with Jesus, praying for individuals, speaking and then listening, being quiet. This takes time. But these are things that I do, and I do them every day. And I will just say, it's not like when, I, when, I, when I'm done with this, like I come inside and click my heels and pick up my children like the end of It's a Wonderful Life, and everyone's like, he's happy again. It's not like that. You, if you talk to my family, like, 
He's, you know, we're all just making it. But I will say this, it's holding me together and it's keeping me in my body. And it's reminding me that God is with me, that he's the God of just enough, that every single time I go to the jar, there will be just enough. One more time. That's a daily life. It's not the sort of life we want. We like nest eggs. We like retirement plans. We like long, we like life insurance. We like knowing things are going to be okay, even if the worst happens. The God of daily bread, the God of just enough, the God of manna is the God who says there will be what you need when you need it. One day we will feast in the house of Zion. One day we will eat the produce of the land. Today we eat the daily bread. And God promises through Elijah to us that there will always be enough in the jar. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you.